Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's an honor to be able to preach today from the Gospel of Mark to close out our sermon series, Following Jesus. Uh, You can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15 if you have a copy of God's Word. We're also going to have the verses on the screen, and we're going to begin in verse 42. But today, we come to the end of a long, uh, amazing journey where we've gone passage by passage through this incredible book. We've seen up close and personal the ministry, the life, the miracles, the interactions, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And today we wrap up our study of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this journey started way back in, are you guys ready for this, September of 2021. There's a lot of take, that has taken place in uh, two years And uh, as we've begun and gone through the gospel of Mark, we've taken a few detours, but uh, still it's it's taken about two years. And I just, before we dive into the text today, I just want to acknowledge some of the things that have taken place since we started this study. And uh, most notably, maybe for our church family, uh, we started this sermon series in another building. How about that for, try that one on for size. We didn't even meet at the academies of Loudoun. We began to worship and do ministry here on Sundays at the academies of Loudoun since we started the study of the gospel of Mark. That's pretty significant, but now going from close to home to really far away, since we started the study, the James Webb telescope has entered orbit. How about that for size? Giving us some stunning pictures like you see here on the screen, the Carina Nebula. If you wanna go hang out there, it's just gonna take you about 7,600 light years uh, to get there. But the James Webb Telescope began to orbit. A few other notable events that have happened since we started the study of the Gospel of Mark. Queen Elizabeth died at the age of 96. Russia invaded Ukraine, which we continue to pray for those who are suffering as a result of this awful war, and a war that has impacted families here in our congregation. Also, Twitter has been bought for a cool $44 billion. That's also happened. These were not hand-selected, by the way. These were kind of aggregated as some big events that have taken place. Also, you see here, maybe most notably, Top Gun 2 was released since we started. Uh, We got some excitement in, in the back for Top Gun 2 release. But more serious matters since we started this study. In fact, since we last met last Sunday, India has landed on the moon. Did you guys see this? This is pretty incredible. The fourth country to actually land a spacecraft on the moon. This week, the Chandrayaan-3 landed on the lunar South Pole. Amazing stuff has taken place over the past two years. A lot of life has taken place. We've Actually, in this congregation, celebrated new marriages, welcomed new babies. We've grieved the loss of relationship, and we've faced difficulties that we didn't see coming. Some started new jobs, and others lost their job. We've buried brothers and sisters in Christ who are dear to our hearts, and we've seen many come to faith in Jesus as a result of this study through the gospel of Mark. I think about my friend Victor, who became a follower of Jesus and was baptized a few months ago, all as a result of us studying the gospel of Mark. Yeah, we can give an applause. It's not just Victor. A number of people have come to faith in Jesus. It's been a long, amazing journey 
A lot of life has taken place. And through it all, we've seen an up-close and personal look at the single most influential figure in all of history. I'm not sure where you currently stand in your faith journey. Maybe you've put your trust, your hope in Jesus, this person named Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you've banked your life, your eternity into him, but maybe some of you here are not there yet. Maybe you still have questions or reservations or you don't really see what all the fuss is about. Or maybe it's someone who claims to be a Christian has turned you off to Christ himself and you're just not really all into that. Regardless of where you stand today in your faith journey, can we all just admit that Jesus is the single most influential person in all of human history, in all of human history. And listen, his influence is not waning. Worldwide, his influence is not in in decline. Today, a greater percentage than ever before of the world's population is Christian. They believe they follow Jesus. In a recent study of Pew Research suggests more than 50,000 persons a day or just under 19 million new people a year turn to Christianity. Now, we must go ahead and say, yes, in America, American adults who identify as Christians have been declining each year, and the number of adults in America who do not um, claim any religion for themselves has been rising steadily, but that doesn't mean that Jesus' influence in the world or that belief in Jesus is in decline globally. What that's telling us is that the most vital and largest Christian populations today are non-Western, non-white populations. The Christian faith is exploding across Asia in places like China, across Africa. I read this week that in Iran, there are more Iranians coming to faith in Jesus in the last 20 years than the previous 13 centuries. Did you know that? Some would say hundreds of thousands, as many as a million Iranians have come to Jesus. I say all of that because I want you to see as we come to an end of this journey in the gospel of Mark, that this one life, this one individual life lived out 2,000 years ago is still the most influential life that has ever been lived, ever. One author has powerfully summarized it this way. He said, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city, never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went throughout the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, the executioners gambled for his garments, the only property that he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And the author goes on to say, 20 centuries 
have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together. Is anybody hearing me this morning? You put all of those together, this, this author says, they have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one solitary life. This one solitary life. And we've seen that life through the gospel of Mark. Each story, each passage, each teaching, each interaction, each miracle. And as of last week in a sermon that Pastor Mike preached from Mark chapter 15, that one solitary life has come to an end. Mark 15, verse 37, records the time that Jesus was on the cross, and it says he uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. He breathed his last. This life that was lived in a way that inspired billions of people for nearly 2,000 years, at this point in the story of the gospel of Mark, that life is over. That life is over. And we pick up the story in verse 42 of Mark chapter 15. This is how the gospel records the events following those few moments. It says, when evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother, mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Jesus is dead and his lifeless body has been buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, before we go into chapter six, can we just sit in this for a moment? Can we just slow down and think about this one solitary life that we have seen up close and personal over these past two years? Can we think about his character? Can we think about his claims? Can we slow down enough and think about what one author refers to as Jesus's life showing or displaying the unmatched excellency of Jesus? The unmatched excellency of Jesus. Just consider the character of this life that we've looked at over the past two years, time and time again. In fact, 100% of the time, we see a unique and extraordinary nature. It's interesting that throughout the gospel account, we see character traits on display that when you first see them, you would think that these certain character traits are incompatible or they seem like those two character traits are unable to reside in the same person at the same time. For example, 
his one solitary life combined the highest majesty with the greatest humility. And we've seen that through every single chapter of the gospel of Mark. And we saw it right out of the gate in Mark chapter one. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and people are amazed at the authority of this man's teaching. In Mark chapter five, he heals a demon-possessed man. Just his words are powerful enough and majestic enough that spiritual forces obey him. We saw in Mark chapter 14, during his trial, Jesus asserts his own divinity when he answers if he is the Christ, the son of the blessed one, and he says, yes, I am, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with clouds of heaven, the highest majesty, ladies and gentlemen, combined with the greatest humility. With the greatest humility. Again, right out of the gate in Mark chapter 1, we saw him moved with pity for a leper, an outcast. And he goes to him and he touches him. This great humility. We see him welcoming little children and blessing them. He's taking them into his arms. Who else in history has displayed such high majesty with such great humility? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. This one solitary life combined the strongest commitment to justice while at the same time shockingly displaying mercy and grace to those who are in great need. He never lowered the bar. Did you, you remember seeing story after story? Jesus didn't lower the bar. He didn't create a, a good old boys club where you just overlook injustice or, or kind of laugh and make light of things that are wrong. He never lowered the bar, but at the same time, sinners were drawn to him. Were they not? I mean, sinners were just drawn into this one solitary life. The excellence, the matchless excellencies of this life. He combined truth and love. He combined truth and love in an extraordinary way. At one point in time, he ticks off the religious or the political left by, by having a dinner with tax collectors. And, and, and these were the people, these were the insiders with the Roman imperial forces. So if you leaned left, you were like, what's he doing? And then the, the next time he's having dinner with prostitutes. So if you leaned right, you're thinking, hold on, what's going on here? This isn't right. And, and he just always perfectly combined truth and love. He would even eat with the Pharisees, showing, as Tim Keller points out, he wasn't even bigoted toward the bigoted. <laughs> just consider his character. The story of the woman at the well is not in the Gospel of Mark, but we did reference it during this sermon series. Consider the character of Christ in this interaction. Jesus encounters a woman who is considered sexually immoral by society. And yet every aspect of his interaction with her was respectful and gracious. Every interaction. He didn't take advantage of her and he didn't shame her with his moral superiority. 
But at the same time, he graciously points out to this woman, her many failed relationships have wreaked havoc in her life, and he calls her to find true and lasting satisfaction in eternal life in him. Majesty and humility, justice and mercy, truth and love, all in one solitary life. But don't just stop at considering his character that we've seen over the past couple of years. I want you to consider the claims that we've heard from him. The claims of this one solitary life. Yes, he was humble. Yes, he was loving. Yes, he was compassionate. But also, he made some very bold claims about who he was and why he was here. Sometimes they were subtle, but they were always significant. He clearly displayed divine authority by performing many miracles. He healed the sick. He casted out demons. He calmed the storm. He even forgave sins. He he looks at a man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, when they heard this, thought, who do you think you are? You can only forgive the sins that were committed against you. And then Jesus not only talks the talk, but walks the walk by healing a man of paralysis. And his premise was that all sins are ultimately against him since he is God. On multiple occasions, Jesus foretells of his impending death and says that after three days, I'm gonna rise in Mark chapter eight, Mark chapter nine, Mark chapter 10, and then again at the last supper in Mark 14. The gospel of Mark starts with the claim that Jesus is God in the flesh in Mark chapter one. In the middle of the gospel, Peter confesses this truth and says, you are the Christ, you are the son of God in Mark chapter eight. And then in Mark chapter 15, the Gentile centurion soldier, as Jesus is dying on the cross, looks and says, surely this is the son of God. From start to finish, we not only see incredible character, we see bold claims by this one solitary life. It's unmatched moral and spiritual beauty in the life of Jesus. And Tim Keller goes on, he quotes this. He says, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. Unmatched excellence. And this is all in one solitary life. And to pick things back up in Mark chapter 15, that life is over. Jesus has been crucified. As the Apostles' Creed states, he was crucified, he was dead and buried. The scene could not have been more devastating. The disciples had placed their hopes, their lives in Jesus. Many had followed Jesus and believed him to be the Messiah. Now their shining hope, their big hope, was brutally executed on the cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. And don't miss this. All of that took place just as Jesus had said it would. Just as he said it would. He said, I've come to die for the sins of the world. And we pick back up the story in Mark chapter 16. 
It says this in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And when they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the great entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. In verse 6, a stunning verse, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb from, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. There is a lot about this story that if we were to slow down and get out of our, our Christian subculture that is shocking that is surprising. First off, Mark's account of the resurrection is shockingly brief. The other gospel accounts take many more verses, much, many more words to give the account of Jesus' resurrection. It has a direct style. The, 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 the resurrection account of the gospel of Mark is shockingly brief, but it's a compelling account of the resurrection. The other thing that I think is surprising is the fact that women were the main witnesses to the events of both the crucifixion and the resurrection, and Mark is very clear about that. That's a bit shocking. Why is that? Well, because women at the time had very low status in both the Roman and Jewish world. Oftentimes, women's testimonies were not even admissible as evidence. And even despite that, Mark repeatedly tells us that women were the main witnesses. And there's a subjective reality going here. It tells us that because that's what was true. <laughs> but there's a subjective reality here, evidence that God doesn't just call people based on their social status, their resume, or their pedigree. So this is shocking. This is surprising. But let's keep it real. All of that uh, pales in comparison to the fact that this young man sitting in an empty tomb says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. That's the most shocking statement of all, is it not? You saw him dead. He's not here any longer. He's risen. He's risen. And that life that was put on display, an unmatched excellency, the one that came to a brutal end, now three days later, just as he said, that life has risen from the grave. Just consider the resurrection for a few moments. This is the greatest news in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a historical fact. It is a historical fact, but there's more to it than just being a historical fact. 
It is the miracle of all miracles, but it's so much more than just that. It fully and forever declares that God exists and Jesus is his son, but it's still more than that. The resurrection actually did happen. And sadly, too often Christians only see it as nothing more than a miracle that proves that Jesus was the son of God. And it certainly does that. We just read in our Bible reading plan through the book of Romans, and you might remember reading in Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul is given an introduction. He says, concerning his son, he was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't know where you stand in your faith journey this morning, but listen to me. The resurrection clearly clearly gives convincing proof that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's more than just that. It's more than just that. And here's where I wanna begin to land the plane this morning in this sermon. I wanna take the next few moments, and I hope you find the next few moments very practical, immensely helpful for you and your journey of faith I want you to see this truth, that the resurrection of Jesus is the core reality that connects your everyday life with the eternal kingdom of God. Did you hear that? I want you to see and I want you to begin to operate out of this reality that the resurrection is that which connects your everyday life to the eternal kingdom of God. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 for Christians. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, he prays that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us belief. He's saying, I want you to experience the power of God in your life. I want you to know this power. Now, what power is he talking about? He says it in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians chapter one, verses 18 through 20. And that's Paul's prayer for those who had put their faith in Jesus. And I want you to see how the resurrection connects your everyday life, tomorrow morning and Tuesday night, Wednesday at lunch and Thursday afternoon, Friday night and Saturday morning. The resurrection connects your everyday life with the eternal kingdom of God the eternal kingdom of God. And I have three words for you to remember in light of this reality. The first one is perspective. When you unite your life to the risen Christ by faith, that resurrection will give you an entirely different perspective, an otherworldly perspective. It gives you a hope. This perspective is anchored in a hope that you can face anything this world throws at you. You now are given a perspective since Jesus has risen from the dead that one day God will fully and finally destroy all of the evil and suffering out there. That's what the resurrection gives you. Ever since sin entered this world, ladies and gentlemen, ever since we turned away from God, sin and evil, suffering and death have dominated the world. It's dominated the world. 
But only in the death and resurrection of Jesus do we have hope that one day every wrong will be made right. Every wrong will be made right. God is saying in the resurrection, I am bringing to pass my plan of salvation and will restore and heal all things. The resurrection shifts our focus from temporary to the eternal. Yes, there's temporary concerns. I'm not here to tell you as a pastor, you don't worry about anything. There's no, no concerns. There's actually things in this world to be concerned about, but they don't have to grip your life. They don't have to consume you. They don't have to dominate you because now Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And that connects your everyday life to the eternal kingdom of God. This resurrection This core reality connects us to the kingdom of God. Not just the evil and suffering out there, though. Pay attention. We're about to get personal. It also says something about God's ultimate plan, ultimate plan to right every wrong that is in here, that is in us. Sometimes you can get so frustrated because you you feel like, The theme of your life can be from that great hymn, my heart is prone to wonder. Is it not? Do we not feel that oftentimes in this life? And the resurrection gives us a different perspective. The resurrection says it's not just gonna get rid of the evil and suffering out there, but it's actually gonna get rid of the weakness and the sin and the brokenness and the frailty in here. Something's going to happen, and that gives you perspective on Monday afternoon when you're dealing with the realities of life in this broken world. The New Testament says, if Christ has not been raised, listen, you're still in your sins. So since Christ has been raised, guess what? You're no longer in your sins. Is that not a good word? I know it's the 915, but we can get excited about that. The word of God says for those of us who have placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see how it connects your everyday life to the eternal kingdom of God? Your sins are covered, believer. The Father loves you. The New Testament is shocking when it says he loves you even as he loves Jesus. And to the degree that you have that perspective this week in your everyday life, you can be free of all toxic guilt and shame of anything in your past. That's what the resurrection offers you in the here and now. But not just perspective. Here's the next word I want you to to remember, you can write it down. I want you to think about the power that is available in your everyday life. The resurrection provides the real needed power to bring lasting change into your life. To begin to live a life that truly stands out. 
The resurrection is a powerful declaration of God's victory over sin and death. And that power doesn't stop at the empty tomb. The New Testament tells us it continues on into the life of the believer. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. And the transformation begins to look more like the character that we mentioned just a few minutes ago. Are you tracking with me? High majesty, great humility, commitment to justice, extraordinary mercy and grace extended to everyone, a combination of truth and love. What the resurrection does in us as followers of Jesus, it transforms our life and and that power makes our lives resemble Jesus all the more. I read an article recently stated 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. Stunning, is it not? 40 million Americans have stopped attending church. That's roughly 12% of the population. It represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. Now, why is this? Well, the article points out in a study, there's many reasons for this, but they suggest the main reason, the largest reason is because of the hyper-focus of individualism and the hyper-focus of what's called workism in American life. It says that either one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospect of one's children just doesn't allow for time to give to church communities. And so for many of these, it wasn't a deliberate decision. I'm, no, I'm out. For many, it just oozed out. The culture pressed in and there was no margin left to give to things like faith communities. 40 million people have exited. It says the underlying challenge for many is that their lives are stretched like a rubber band. Somebody says amen to that. About to snap. (laughs) And church attendance ends up feeling like an item on a checklist that's already too long. And the author asked the question, what can churches do in such a context? And this is what he says. He says, in theory, Christian church could be the antidote to all of that. What is more needed in our time than a community marked by sincere love, sharing what they have from each according to their ability to each according to their need, eating together regularly, generously serving neighbors, and living lives of quiet virtue and prayer. A healthy church can be a safety net in the harsh American economy by offering its members material assistance in times of need, meals after a baby is born, money for rent after a layoff. Perhaps more important, it reminds people that their identity is not in their job or how much money they make. They are children of God, loved, protected, and infinitely valuable. I loved reading that, and I thought to myself, goodness, that church sounds a lot like Jesus. Sincere love, sharing what they have, eating together regularly, generously serving neighbors, 
living lives of quiet virtue and prayer, NBC Loudon, how can we cultivate that type of church here in this congregation? How can you be that type of Christian? I'm going to tell you how. It's not you get out and try your hardest and do better next time. It's going to be the power of God transforming you to look more like Jesus. And that's the plan. That's the plan. That's, that is what is before us in the Christian journey. So you have perspective. You have power. And finally, I'll end it here. You have purpose. In your everyday life, your purpose is connected in to the eternal kingdom of God. The resurrection gives you a purpose, a meaning that can't be taken away from you. The resurrection anchors our purpose in eternal realities. It allows our lives to not be confined to this temporary, fleeting, earthly experience. Thinking this week about a book I recently read, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall. That came out of left field, I know, but follow with me. It's a fascinating book, by the way. Remarkable It says it's the greatest immigrant success story of our time. From a small town in Austria, post-World II, to one of the most remarkably successful lives ever lived in America. You guys tracking with me? And he knew it from a young age. Like back in Kids Quest, somebody knows like, hey, I'm, I'm going big in my life. And then actually pulls it off. It's a fascinating read. But I read it in light of an interview that I read recently of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's 76 years old. And this is what he said. The man who had won 19 bodybuilding competition was a Hollywood star, popular politician. This is what the interview said. He was complaining about how terrible his figure is today at the age of 76. Compared to all of those years he had won bodybuilding competitions. He said, for my whole life, I would look at the mirror and see the best built man. And all of the sudden, I see something terrible. (laughs) He said, you get wrinkle under your eyes, you get wrinkles under your pecs. He said, no matter how hard you work, your stomach always sticks out. Arnold Schwarzenegger, 76 years old, reminded me of a few months ago, one of my sons, who's going to remain nameless, I had, so I'm, I'm into fitness. I enjoy working out. It's a release valve for me. And uh, I just got done working out. And, uh, and I remember one of my sons looked at me, and then he looked down at my core area, my abs, and he, he looked back at me and he said, Dad, do you ever work out your abs? <laughs> and I was like, Buddy, I'm 43, man. There's nothing else you can do once you get your mid-40s. This is downhill. We're just trying to maintain from here on out, you know? But the article said that right by Schwarzenegger's pool is a taunting reminder of the past, an eight-foot bronze statue of Arnold at his bodybuilding prime. And he says, looking in The mirror is not pleasurable, but you cope with it. I thought to myself, how sad is that? 
That's a tragedy. That you live your whole life and your aim is something that is stripped away from you and there is nothing you can do. It's coming to an end. And he looks in the mirror and all he can do is cope with it. And I want everyone to listen to me. The resurrection of Jesus is the truth that you don't have to get to the end of your life and cope with it. It doesn't have to be something that you say is not pleasurable. God wants more for your life than to cope with it when you come to the end of it. He doesn't want you to come to the end of your journey and say, I'm looking in the mirror now and it's not pleasurable. In fact, the resurrection, in the resurrection, he wants your life to be part of something bigger than yourself that outlasts your own brief run here in this world. He wants to give you a purpose. He wants to give you the why behind the what you do this week. And that why can outlast your money. It can outlast your temporary beauty. It can outlast your positions in the marketplace. It can outlast your intellect. All of those things are fleeting. They're here one day and gone the next. He wants more for you. Not that you would cope with it, but you would get to the end of your life and be satisfied in Jesus. And I assure you, there is no other truth in all of the world that will connect your everyday life to the eternal kingdom of God in the purpose of your life outside of the resurrection of Jesus. What a savior. Matchless excellency of his character. Stunning truth claims he made throughout the book of Mark. A brutal crucifixion. And his resurrection today offers every single one of us a new perspective, a hope that can face anything, a new power, something that can truly and lastingly change your life and a new purpose, a meaning that cannot be taken away from you. The resurrection of Jesus is the core reality that connects your everyday life to the eternal kingdom of God. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here because I want to respond in a time of worship. I want to give you just a few moments to think on, to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, do you believe it? Do you trust in, do you hope in the resurrection? There is nothing else out there that will give you what you need that will bring your story to a happy ending outside of the resurrection of Jesus. And for those of us who do believe, is your everyday life connected in with the kingdom of God in light of what the resurrection accomplishes for you. A new perspective, a new power, a new purpose. I'll give you just a moment 
just sit there before the Lord, prayerfully considering his word, his truth, and then the team's gonna lead us in a song of response.